It's Tuesday, March 16, 1858, two days after a vision. Ellen and her husband James are on a 170-mile train ride from Fremont, Ohio to Jackson, Michigan, where they'll stop for the night before heading the rest of the way to Battle Creek, home for them. And as they travel, they're planning the writing and publishing of the book that will eventually become the series we know as The Conflict of the Ages. We don't know much more about this moment other than that. Ellen, in her own description of the train ride, just writes, While journeying on the cars to Jackson, Michigan, we arranged our plans for writing and publishing immediately on our return home, the book entitled The Great Controversy Between Christ and His Angels and Satan and His Angels. Two people on a train. Planning. That's all we have. Maybe you're familiar with these books, or maybe you're just getting started. But either way, just pause and think about that. Spend a moment there in that train car. Think about what it means to arrange plans for writing and publishing the contents of a vision. What does that look like? Are they taking notes? Outlining things? Are they just praying a lot? Are they giddy? Solemn? Are they having to speak loudly to hear each other? And if you're not someone who believes in visions or that Ellen received visions, try to suspend your disbelief for a moment and just imagine what that would feel like. How do you think you would go about writing that book? Would God give you the words to use? Would you have writer's block? Would you have superhuman focus? Would you procrastinate? Would you ever feel satisfied with what you had written? Would you want to revise it? Would you know that you won't need to? Imagine the excitement of that new project, or the holy burden of it, what it could be like to be charged by God with the writing of that book. That night in Jackson, Ellen will end up paralyzed. It will come out of nowhere while she's talking with a friend. She'll feel her tongue go numb and feel a strange, cold sensation. She'll lose consciousness. When she comes to, she'll be unable to communicate. And she'll think that she's about to die. She'll think of her children, 50 miles away, and how she'll never see them again. And she'll recover, slowly, but it will take her months to get back to her regular health. But throughout her recovery, she will write the book. Slowly, at first, but the book will get written. And then there'll be another, and another, and another. And Ellen will spend the rest of her life communicating the theme of that vision. From the age of 30 to her death at 87, off and on, between all her other duties, she will write about that vision. She will spend 57 years, almost two-thirds of her life, writing and refining and expanding what will eventually become the Conflict of the Ages series, the theme of which will help shape a fledgling religious movement, and eventually the lives of millions of people across the world, including ours. Yes, I knew Sister White in this way. I heard her preach once. And Sar, of course, hailed by millions as a messenger of God, as a prolific author, and even a prophetess, on whose shoulders would be built the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And to say that her council has given the Seventh-day Adventist Church a distinct advantage in many ways would be an understatement. Through this young lady, God shared great wisdom with the church and with the world for more than 70 years. When I became convinced that Ellen White was a prophet, I had never been to a Seventh-day Adventist church. We noted that the Bible's last book identifies the testimony of Jesus as Revelation 19.10, the spirit of prophecy. It is important that you and I glean a fundamental understanding from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy as to how we ought to be. Listen to how Ellen White says it. She says, the Christian's mission in the world is to reveal the character of Christ. Patriarchs and Prophets explains the encampment of the Israelites. I love a statement that Ellen White makes in the book Prophets and Kings, page 290. Get your hands on the desire of ages and read it, devour it, absorb it. You will exit the other side of that book, a different person. Ellen White makes it clear in Acts of the Apostles that Herod did this because Herod had remembered the escape of the apostles from prison early Great on. Controversy 612 says, miracles will be wrought, a counter work, and people will be impressed. The harvest will be ripened, and God's people will be ready to go home. From Types and Symbols, this is The Conflict Audible. I'm Ivan. I'm Livy. 
And today on our show, a panoramic view of Ellen White and these five remarkable books. I must admit, the first time I heard about Ellen White, I was becoming somewhat convinced about the Bible. And I said, okay, uh, the Bible might be all right, but I'll never get tangled up with this Ellen White woman. This is George Knight, a retired professor of church history and an author who has written quite a few books about this Ellen White woman. I, I, I don't know the exact number, uh, but uh, a lot of my other books have, you know, major sections on Ellen White and she, how she integrates with Christian history or theology or something else. But uh, to Ellen White specifically, I've dedicated probably uh, seven or eight. Um, In any case, pretty tangled up with Ellen White. And who exactly is Ellen White? I think the best way is use her own description. She's the messenger of God. She was born in 1827. She died in 1915. And when she was still a teenager, she began to have visions. That's right, visions. And by that, we mean that she believed that God showed her things supernaturally. Over the course of her life, she's reported to have had a couple hundred or thousand visions, depending on how you count them. And she wrote about those visions and the things she learned from them. A lot. 24 books in her lifetime and over 5,000 articles. And she was one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which grew to over 130,000 members in her lifetime, with over 20 million members today. If you're not too familiar with Ellen or the idea of people getting visions, you may rightly think that this is kind of a remarkable claim. Like, why would people, let alone a whole denomination of people, even believe that any of this actually happened? Isn't it a little too bizarre? Why even consider that the things she wrote about are somehow from God? Well, we can't get too into that on today's episode, but briefly, the idea is this. It is a pretty accepted Christian idea that God actively reveals himself to his people. In the past, he communicated things to Moses, the Old Testament prophets, and the New Testament writers like John. How exactly he communicates varies a little bit from person to person, but generally the idea is that God inspired the writers whose words now make up the Christian Bible. And in the Bible, in that inspired text, there are passages about how the gift of prophecy is one of the many gifts God gives to the church, that it will occur again in the future, that people will again be divinely inspired to prophesy. So yes, it's kind of uncommon in mainstream Protestant Christianity for there to be modern-day prophets or people receiving visions, but there are a lot of verses in the Bible that say this kind of a thing can still happen. And another note, you'll notice that we seem to be equating ideas like having visions and prophecy and even being a prophet throughout this episode. I have questions about that that I hope we'll get into in a future episode, but for now, just go with it. Anyway, not too long after first hearing of Ellen White, George learned about one of her books. I was 19, no, I was 18 years old. I was not a Seventh-day Adventist. And I went to a meeting uh, with my girlfriend of Adventist young people, and there was a call porter talking about the triumph of God's love, which is another name for great controversy. A call porter is someone who sells books door to door, usually religious, not always. It's a very beautiful edition, and he did such a good job at it that I got so excited that I said, let me buy a copy now. And I tried to buy a copy of The Triumph of God's Love on Sabbath. And of course, he wouldn't sell it to me. (laughs) He said, you have to wait until sundown. And so I said, okay, I'll wait until sundown. And then I paid $14.25, which was a lot of money back in 1960 or 61, whatever it was. So I'm not sure he did this right, but Ivan looked this up, and he said that that's the equivalent of $120 for one book. And uh, that was the first Christian book I ever read, and really it did a lot to shape my thinking and my uh, later Christian walk. Can you describe uh, a little bit about what, what it looked like in that meeting? Yeah, it was, uh, as far as I recall, it was probably a Sabbath school room. Uh, although it, well, all I remember is it was a rather plain room, and there was probably 15 young people there. And I think it was just an afternoon youth program. And uh, so my girlfriend said, let's go. And I said, yeah, why not? And so we went, and the rest is history. I bought that book, and within, oh, I don't know, 
couple of months, I had read the thing from cover to cover and had insights that I never had before. Life-changing insights. Mind-shaping insights. Today in the Adventist Church, George is considered to be something of an expert on how to understand Ellen and her writings. That, that call porter later became one of my seminary students. And it's hard to know where exactly we'd be today without him. Maybe some other young person in some other rather plain room would have had a similar experience, and their life changed and their mind shaped in a similar way, and later taken up the work of studying and, importantly, explaining Adventist history and Ellen White. But George is the person who really got that started. And the books that he wrote about Ellen were pretty helpful. The series called Meeting Ellen White. Uh, talks about her life, her works, and the major theological themes. And then the one that I think is most important, reading Ellen White, the um, principles of interpretation. How do you read her and uh, understand her the way she'd like to be understood, rather than the way some people have understood her? And then I wrote one um, about Ellen, uh, walking with Ellen White, which basically says, well, did she have perfect children? She always get along with her husband? Did she ever smile? <laughs> you know, all these kinds of things. She was a real person. And uh, sometimes we forget that she had her own challenges uh, at the same time that she was ministering to God. Uh, and then the last one dealt with Ellen White's world. What was it like? Well, it was a terrible world. You went to a hospital not to get well. You went there to die. Most Americans in the 1830s had never had a bath their entire life. Uh, and it's just a different world. And to understand Ellen White, particularly a lot of her counsel, you have to understand the worlds in which she came. And I say worlds because the world before the Civil War was quite different than the world after. And I imagine you can pick any of these books up at your local Adventist Book Center. <laughs> you don't even have to go there. Have you heard of Amazon.com? <laughs> Can you tell me about what motivated you to, to write these books? I think with meeting Ellen White, it's described as a fresh look. Um, At her life writings and major themes. Yes, or that is the subtitle, in fact. Um, what, what was the stale look? Well, I'll, I'll be very frank with you. Um, Ellen White had been misused from the, night, from the time of her death, practically, even before that time. Uh, her writings had been misused uh, by her, her so-called followers. And um, we went through a little crisis because of, of the misuse, and scholars began to say, well, wait a minute, that's not the way it really is. And so we went through a, a crisis in the 70s that was very serious. And so the, um, the first book I wrote uh, had to do with, uh, well, it was called Myth the Myths in Adventism. And part of those myths, most of them had to do with Ellen White. And the first chapter was a bombshell. It would not sound radical now, but in 1985, it was a bomb. And that was the myth of the inflexible prophet. That uh, it's the followers who were inflexible, not Ellen White. She was always very concerned with time and place, uh, how much money people had, uh, whether they could afford to do something. And so she had flexible counsel. So this council George is referring to, there's quite a lot of it. A good chunk of Ellen's visions and writings were about pretty specific things. How to organize things, how to deal with a personal issue, how to handle a particular situation. And there was no one right answer to most problems. She always took the context into consideration and even said, believe it or not, use common sense. Uh, Adventist of my generation, that's the last thing they used. They had a quotation, somewhat like a blazing gun, and you didn't stand up against a quotation. But Ellen White faced all of these things in her own lifetime. Nobody had ever studied how Ellen White interpreted her own writings, and that was the basis of that um, particular chapter, The Myth of the Inflexible uh, Prophet. And uh, that, that, that book uh, really did a lot to change the Adventist mindset. That book, and that chapter in particular, is what got George started with the Ellen White series, who she was and what the main points of her writings even were. 
I, I tried to get other people, excluding people in the white estate, can you help me with their educational themes? And they'd say, well, education, uh, no, no, medical work. And I said, those aren't themes, those are topics. What, what holds, or, what's, what's, what's the glue that holds everything together? And I had to invent this one myself just because, uh, you know, I'd been writing, reading her all those years. And the love of God came out central. And the love of God goes right back to the Conflict of the Ages series. Because the first three words in Patriarchs and Prophets, first of five volumes, and some 3,000 pages later, the first words and the last words are the same three words. God is love. Ivan and I both grew up Adventist, both grew up in Berrien Springs. Which is home of the main Adventist Theological Seminary, where George actually used to teach. So we were exposed to a pretty educated version of Adventism, and we grew up feeling rather fine about Ellen. In our own lives, she never really felt misused, if anything, maybe underused. At worst, she could sometimes come across like an oddly hyper-confident but rather distant aunt. But this misuse that George is mentioning, this thing that got him started writing all these books in the 80s and 90s, it's a real thing. We've definitely heard about it, and while George's books have done a lot to help correct some misunderstandings, not everyone's read them. And so part of the Ellen White story is that it can be pretty easy to misunderstand her. Michael grew up in New England, and when he was about nine years old, his mother became interested in religious things. She started going to a neighborhood Bible study, and he tagged along because he got to hang out with the other kids. You know, I, I was going to play uh, street hockey and trade baseball cards. That, that was my draw to the Bible study. Michael really loved playing hockey. And one of those days, kid Michael took a break from the hockey and went inside and ended up sticking around to hear a conversation. Um, one of the ladies in that Bible study group, she was a Seventh-day Adventist. And, and this was sort of a curious thing where people began to ask her questions. Don't you believe in Ellen White? And when that happened, someone shared and said Adventists are a cult because they make Ellen White's writings more important than Scripture. This woman had shared some of Ellen's writings with his family in the past. So at this point, Michael and his family already had a few of her books at home. And I remember we, we went home after that and threw her books out thinking, well, we don't want to be part of, of this kind of thing. They ended up giving Ellen another chance, though, and realized that they hadn't really gotten a fair picture of her. After studying some more, they realized that Ellen was challenging them to become better students of the Bible, and Michael's family actually ended up joining the Adventist church. Ellen White didn't figure too heavily for Michael after that. He says she mostly stayed on the back burner for him. I remember kind of my second introduction with Ellen White uh, after we had become Adventists was really when I was in a small little country church. This was just a few years later. Michael was about 12 years old, a relatively new Adventist still. Uh, and, and some of the church members asked me to lead out in song service one day. And so I got up and I, I had this brilliant idea because I was, I was really nervous. <laughs> and I could just do the, the first and last stanza of each him and get done a lot faster. And I, I did that and went to the back of the church where the foyer was, relieved that it was over. And I had this elderly saint in the church that, that came up to me. I can still picture her. Uh, and she just began to rebuke me. Don't you know that Ellen White says that you should sing every stanza of, of a hymn? And I was just appalled and shocked. Uh, I thought, what does Ellen White care about me leading song service? Remember, Michael was only about 12. And while certainly some 12-year-olds may appreciate saintly condescension, Michael wasn't very into it. And so that was kind of this, this kind of knee-jerk reaction that, you know, I really don't want anything more to do with her writings or with who she was. Uh, it wasn't until sometime later I, the, the timeline's a little bit fuzzy for me that uh, I kind of gave Ellen White a, another chance and, and I was really kind of at this pivotal spiritual moment and I picked up The Great Controversy and then Desire of Ages, volumes in the, the Conflict of the Ages series. And I began to read them thinking, I, I was waiting for a list of rules kind of because I'd gotten hit over the head by this quotation. And I realized she's really not into that. And I, I started realizing there's a whole nother dimension to Ellen White. A lot of what people think or say she said wasn't 
necessarily always the the reality. It wasn't really what she was about. And in fact, I even went back to look for that supposed quote about singing every stanza of every hymn. And, and to my surprise, she she never said it. <laughs> and so I. I I, I, I have what I, I've begun collecting, what I call the Ellen White Apocrypha, all the supposed things she said but never really said. Someday I hope to make a book out of that. We'll come back to Michael in a bit. Like George in the 80s and 90s, he's actually been doing a lot of work to help the Adventist church better understand Ellen, part of the current generation of Adventist historians. But his story and these two misunderstandings that Adventists think Ellen is more important than the Bible, that Ellen is all about rules, they're a good example of some of the challenges Adventists have had in communicating and understanding who Ellen is. A helpful place to start understanding Ellen is to understand more about the context she lived and wrote in. So we asked George to tell us about Ellen White's world at the time. Okay, Uh, Ellen White's world uh, in terms of what she wrote and how she wrote it and and the audiences involved, it was a Christian world. It was largely a Protestant world, at least in North America, which is where she did her work. And uh, she's looking in a world in which people were actually thinking in the framework of Christianity, all the way from creation to Second Advent, Second Advent, as we move into the second half of the 19th century, becomes a major theme. Advent is another word for arrival, particularly an important one. So in Christianity, the first and second Advents refer to the first and second arrivals of Jesus. This is part of where the name Seventh-day Adventists comes from. Adventists are looking forward to the second arrival of Christ. It's out of this period, uh, after um, the um, rise of the Advent movement with Millerism in the 1840s, by the time you get past the Civil War, people are beginning to think more and more about how long this world is going to last. There are two major theories. One is called postmillennialism, which was very popular all the way through the 19th century and earlier century, and that is that the world will get better and better and better, and the millennium, the thousand years of peace and plenty, will take place on Earth. And at the far end of the millennium, Christ will come. That theory, which fueled social reform in the 19th century, that theory was met head-on very forcefully by what later became known as dispensationalism. There are several dispensations and that uh, there will be a secret rapture and that Christ will come before the millennium. A dispensation is something like a God-appointed age or era. The idea is that there are many of these ages or eras, and the millennium is one of them, taking place after the return of Christ. And this becomes a a very strong point, and by the 1920s, the liberal versus the conservative churches will be lined up on different views of the second coming of Christ. One of them will be by the, by the conservatives, the fundamentalists, and that will be dispensationalism, secret rapture, and all of that. And the other would be the post-millennial view, let's get out and make a better world so when the world is perfect, Christ can come. So you can hear that both of these theories refer to something called the millennium. This idea comes from some language in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, where it says that Satan will be imprisoned for a thousand years or that some people will reign with Christ for a thousand years. This shows up in both theories of the time. But Adventists fit into neither camp. We were premillennialists. But no secret rapture. I mean, we just couldn't see. I mean, let's face it. If uh, all the graves are open and Christ is coming in the clouds of heaven and there's big trumpets and, and the cry of the archangel, it's the least secret thing in the history of the universe. <laughs> in other words, Adventists believed that Christ was going to return before the thousand good years, making us premillennialists. So we couldn't side with the postmillennialists. 
but we didn't agree with many of the other dispensationalist ideas. Anyway, that's pretty much the general context, Christian world, heavy interest in eschatology, which is another th way of saying the final events before Jesus comes. This was the interest of her culture. It's the interest of the books. And uh, whether we like it or not, it better be the interest right now, because after, since since Hiroshima, we live in a time when the end can be brought about a, a very easily and quickly, but not painlessly. Let me just ask you to say your name and title. My name is Michael Campbell, and I'm an associate professor of religion at Southwestern Adventist University. This is the same Michael from earlier. And you did this interview on your own. Right. And the reason I wanted to speak with him in the first place is because he's done a lot of research about the different ways that Adventism has interacted with this idea that Ellen White was inspired, that God somehow communicated with her and how, and then what you do with that. One of my areas of interest is the 1919 Bible Conference. And, and the reason that particular episode is, is significant in Adventist history is simply because that's the first time our church begins to discuss the authority and how to properly interpret her writings. Ellen White died in 1915, so while she could just tell people how to interpret her writings when she was alive, this conference, four years later, ends up setting the stage for how people will interpret them going forward. And I basically argue that there were two major camps. Obviously, there's some nuance there, but two major camps. You have one camp that is hearkening back to Ellen White's lifetime, a more moderate stance of, of recognizing how she wrote her writings over time, what we call thought inspiration. God inspired the thoughts, she writes them out. And then you begin to see developing uh, during her lifetime the second view where Ellen White's writings are inerrant and infallible. Another way of thinking about this is that in one version, God showed Ellen a bunch of stuff, like what the word vision kind of suggests. And she then had to figure out how exactly to describe that stuff. The ideas are inspired, but not the specific words. Mm, so if this were happening today and she was, say, a filmmaker, she could try to communicate that stuff using film? I think so. Or even just host a, a podcast. podcast. Yes, way less expensive. Okay, but in the other version, God dictated to Ellen the exact words that she should use, or at least signed off on them. So it's all perfect. Those words inerrant and infallible that Michael used both mean essentially that it's impossible for her or her writings to contain any errors. And that's really only possible if God is doing all the writing. Okay, so in this second version, this idea that things are inerrant and infallible, are there Adventists who think that? Can you believe that about her? I mean, I think people do. And what Michael's suggesting is that these two major perspectives still exist within Adventism. But... If you take that approach, it doesn't work very well with Ellen White because she revised her writing. She never claimed to be inerrant and infallible. But the difference is, is that she's no longer alive anymore during the early 20th century. And we also begin to see the development of fundamentalism in American religion where they're pushing an inerrant view of inspired writings. And some Adventists are beginning to push for that within Adventism. Just last year, in 2019, Michael released a book about that 1919 conference, a century before, titled 1919, The Untold Story of Adventism's Struggle with Fundamentalism. And I think that's kind of a great title, because I, at least, never was told any stories about Adventism's struggle with fundamentalism. It was actually just a few months ago that I even heard about that conference. And while different people have different views about fundamentalism, and fundamentalism includes a few different elements, the particular element of traditional fundamentalism that matters to this particular episode is the idea of inerrancy. Anyway, as you can probably imagine, this idea of inspiration and which of the two versions you believe in can have a pretty significant effect on how you read anything Ellen White writes. And if you haven't read The Conflict of the Ages before, or in a while, you may be wondering, how exactly might these ideas of inspiration influence what you take away from these books? Well, to explain this, it's probably useful if you understand what the actual content of these books is. So here's George again. The first is Patriarchs and Prophets. Uh, starts out uh, from the creation story. It takes it up through the time of David. And then you got Prophets and Kings. And then you got my favorite book, Desire of Ages, which is the life of Christ. And uh, beyond that, 
You've got Acts of the Apostles, uh, which basically focuses on, on the spread of the early church, especially through Paul. And then you've got the Great Controversy, which takes it from the time of the apostles uh, clear on up to the time of the end. And uh, that the whole sequence is powerful. Um, and embedded in that sequence is a philosophy of history. Now, there's a lot of history, but that's not what's important. It's the philosophy of history. Is God really love? And of course, the subtitle for the entire series is the conflict between Christ and Satan. The conflict is not between human beings and Satan. It's Christ that is at the center of these series. And it's Satan, who said that God is not loving, his law is not loving, uh, and he goes right on down the, the list of accusations. You'll find the same thing, actually, in the book of Revelation. All the songs in the book of Revelation are holy and just is our God. Is he? That is the question of the ages. The, what Ellen White called the great controversy will not be over until that final demonstration is made. And... Uh, the philosophy undergirding these books, readers ought to especially watch out for that. The great controversy is all about the justice of God. Is God truly just? Is he right? Is he loving? Uh, or is he, you know, as Satan would say, just a cruel tyrant? So it's a, it's a, it's a war of demonstration. God never uses force. He always demonstrates. The cross is not an explanation of salvation. It is an illustration of the love of God. This theme, this great controversy theme, is somewhat unique to Adventists. And for the most part, Adventists are clear that Ellen White has not led the development of Adventist theology, but instead her visions confirmed things helped push people toward deeper study. But this, the great controversy theme, this philosophy of history, that everything in salvation history is tied into this conflict over the character of God, this way of packaging together the framework of Adventist beliefs, that really begins with Ellen's great controversy vision. And so for this particular series, it matters quite a lot whether you believe Ellen had her thoughts inspired or her words because she says quite a lot in these books about that particular theme and how that particular theme relates to the lives of people in the Bible and to us today. And depending on how you understand inspiration, it may lead you to believe that every single detail Ellen White wrote is inspired. And so if you find yourself disagreeing with a single detail, a phrase, or a sentence, you may feel like you have to discard everything else about Ellen White. But that actually gets us into another very closely related topic, interpretation. And here's why. Assume, if you will, that something Ellen White wrote was indeed inspired. It could be a particular word or idea, depending on your perspective. But then also assume that she wrote it 150 years ago, in a world like the one George described for us earlier. And that when she wrote, she was much more concerned with communicating with the people of that particular time and context. The meaning of a few words has changed since then, notably the word intercourse, which used to be a common way of saying interaction and now isn't. And even certain ideas, however they were communicated, might have been more relevant to readers at the time. So if you believe that Ellen's words were inspired, and the meaning of the words has changed, then you will have to interpret them, given what you understand the words to have meant at the time. If you believe that Ellen's ideas were inspired, then the thing that really matters is understanding the principles of what she was saying, recognizing that she was using the best language she had. So interpreting what Ellen wrote, however it was you think she was inspired, matters. But there's a lot more room for interpretation if you believe that her ideas were inspired, and it can actually be pretty necessary. This is the exact same thing Christians have to work through when reading the Bible, but it's a little bit trickier here because Ellen White wrote much more recently and in the English language. So it's easier for us to think we understand exactly what she was saying. And in 1919, at that conference that Michael talked about only four years after Ellen White died, the ideas of interpretation and inspiration were very closely tied together and beginning to compete in some ways. And so we see two different ways of approaching, or what we call hermeneutics, two different ways of interpreting inspired writings that are soon after her death are becoming 
very obvious and and even polarizing one another farther apart. Obviously, there's nuance and 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 it's augmented and, and changed through the contours of the 20th century. But underneath it all are these these root issues of authority and how to correctly interpret inspired writings, and and that is probably one of our biggest challenges that the Seventh-day Adventist Church faces today. Is there consensus on on what on how we're supposed to interact with them now? Well, I, I do think there is some some kind of basic, obvious ways of how to interpret her writings that have been accepted within the Seventh-day Adventist Church historically. And I would say that there's kind of established a, a, a norm. So there's this norm... But according to Michael, there isn't really any official statement from the church about how to interpret Ellen White. Ellen herself wrote about this, and different church entities have written about this question. But there's no really clear, definitive place you can go to find what Adventists believe about how to read these books. But there's sort of this litmus test that you know if you're doing it right. Uh, I believe it's Ministry of Healing, page 590, where Ellen White talks about... um, basically to the fact that the closer we come to Christ, the more we become loving and lovable Christians. So in other words, our hermeneutics should lead us closer to Christ in becoming more loving and lovable Christians. So if we read Ellen White's writings in a healthy and balanced way, it should change the way that we interface with those around us, our family, our fellow church members, so that we become those more loving and lovable Christians. And then, of course, it should always lead us back to Scripture. If you're only reading Ellen White's writings to the exclusion of the Bible, then, again, something's wrong. So there's this woman, and she's inspired. She has visions and dreams, and she writes books about what is revealed to her. And how you understand her context, this idea of inspiration, and how to interpret them can have a pretty significant effect on how you ultimately understand her writings. But maybe it also goes the other way. Maybe what you understand about how she wrote those writings can tell you something about how inspiration works, or at least how Ellen thought of it. So, how did these books come about? In 1858, there are less than 3,000 Sabbath-keeping Adventists. That's fewer Adventists than my mom has friends on Facebook. The church won't formally establish itself for another five years. It's March. Ellen and her husband James are attending some meetings in Lovett's Grove, Ohio. While they're there, James conducts a funeral service. There's about 40 people present. And as the service ends, Ellen stands up to give a few remarks, and before she gets too far, She goes into vision. By this point, Ellen has already had several visions. She's been getting them since she was 17, so that in itself isn't new. In fact, even the contents of the vision are similar to a vision she had 10 years earlier. It's about a war in heaven. But this time, she is explicitly instructed to write about it. So Ellen and James make plans to start work on this immediately, and despite some health challenges, a book comes out six months later. Spiritual Gifts, the great controversy between Christ and his angels and Satan and his angels. It's 219 pages and contains three chapters on the fall of Satan, the fall of man, and the plan of salvation, then skips to 13 chapters on the life of Christ, then 25 chapters of church history through the end of time. This vision and the instruction to write it out had interrupted some writing Ellen had been doing to prepare a sort of autobiographical account of her experience and visions. So she returns to that and, in 1860, two years later, publishes a book titled My Christian Experience, Views and Labors in Connection with the Rise and Progress of the Third Angel's Message. This is published as the second volume in the Spiritual Gifts set. Remember, Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, contained the gist of the Great Controversy story, but it had very little content covering Old Testament history. So, in 1864, Spiritual Gifts, Volumes 3 and 4, are published with much more information, from the original vision and later visions, about this time period. The two volumes together filling 383 pages, both volumes carrying the subtitle, Important Facts of the Faith in Connection with the History of Holy Men of Old. Well, some years pass, and the church grows and apparently appreciates these four volumes of spiritual gifts, and people begin asking for another printing. 
But Ellen doesn't want another printing of those books because she feels that so much more has been revealed to her, and so she begs for some time to present the subjects more completely before publishing again. The plan is a new set of books, also four volumes, this time of about 400 pages each. And six years after the last Spiritual Gifts book, in the year 1870, Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1, is published. This first volume tells the story from the fall of Lucifer and creation up to the time of King Solomon. Volumes 2 and 3 of the Spirit of Prophecy series come out in book form seven years later in 1877 and 1878. Most of the chapters are published in the Signs of the Times magazine ahead of the books while Ellen is working on them. These two books together cover the life of Jesus and the stories of the apostles. Spirit of Prophecy Volume 4 is published in 1884, which really can be considered a first iteration of the book that today we call The Great Controversy. It traces the controversy theme from the early centuries of the Christian era through the Reformation with the intent of helping the reader understand the controversy in Ellen's own day. And with that, the four intended volumes of the Spirit of Prophecy series are complete. This just reminded me of a question. Um, So sometimes you'll hear Adventists refer to all of Ellen White's writings as the Spirit of Prophecy. You know, or they'll say like, oh, well, it says in Spirit of Prophecy, whatever. And they're not actually referring to that set of books. They're kind of just referring to like... They refer to her her writings in general, but I I call it the writings of Ellen White. Where they get that phrase is uh, uh, Revelation 19.10, where it calls the work of the Holy Spirit in uh, the gift of prophecy, the spirit of prophecy. But really, that refers to the spirit given to the prophets down through the ages and... uh, uh, I think, you know, you can use the term. I don't have any problem with people that do, but I prefer to use the writings of Ellen White and not to sound overly mm. arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as, as if Ellen White had the entire gift. So now the church has two sets of books. First, Spiritual Gifts, published in the late 1850s through early 60s. In this set, the first volume contains the first account of the vision, the second volume is autobiography, and the third and fourth volumes cover the great controversy story in the Old Testament. Second, Spirit of Prophecy, published in the 1870s and early 80s. In this set, the first volume covers the Old Testament, the second and third volumes together cover the time of Jesus and the apostles, and the fourth volume covers church history from the first century through the end of the world. But we're not done. Now it's 1885, 27 years after the vision and the instruction to write. Work on the Spirit of Prophecy series is finished and Ellen heads to Europe to visit various sites from Reformation history. And while she's there, she learns so much more, she remembers and is re-shown things from earlier visions, and she decides she needs to write the story again. But here's the difference. Her earlier works were written mostly to and for the church, for people who knew who she was and who had been reading her stuff for a while now. These new volumes would not only be expanded and amplified, they'd be written for the general reader who knew nothing about Ellen or her work. So it's in Europe that Ellen makes plans to rewrite and expand the Spirit of Prophecy books into five volumes of the Conflict of the Ages series. She starts by rewriting Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4. She starts work on it in 1886 while still in Switzerland, and it's published in 1888 under the title The Great Controversy Between Christ and Satan During the Christian Dispensation. This is the same title the Spirit of Prophecy book had, but this one says revised and enlarged on the title page, and now it's grown from the original 492 pages to 678 pages, has more illustrations, a larger appendix, and several more helpful notes in the back. This is the first edition of the book that we know today as The Great Controversy, typically thought of as book five in the Conflict of the Ages series. In this rewriting, Ellen also adds her own eight-page introduction. Remember, she intended this book for the general public, not just her own church, so this is where she gently writes about the source of her information and inspiration in general. This can be seen as a sort of introduction to the whole Conflict of the Ages series in her own words. You can find this intro in copies of the book today. 
Next, Ellen moves on to rewriting and expanding volume one of Spirit of Prophecy. Remember, this covered pre-creation up to King Solomon. And this new rewriting is published in 1890 as the book we know today as Patriarchs and Prophets. This clocks in at 762 pages. In the 1890s, Ellen finally gets to turn her attention back to writing about the life of Christ, expanding volumes two and part of three in the Spirit of Prophecy series, as well as collecting other materials she's already written on the subject throughout her life. I say finally, because this seems to be the thing she wanted to write about most. In a letter written during this time, she says, You know that my whole theme, both in the pulpit and in private, by voice and pen, is the life of Christ. And it sure seems like it because in 1898, she publishes The Desire of Ages at 835 pages. And it's only so short because she breaks off some content into other books like Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, Christ's Object Lessons, and The Ministry of Healing. So with those three books done, The Great Controversy, Patriarchs and Prophets, and The Desire of Ages, the main points of the conflict story are complete. But there are still two wide gaps left in the biblical narrative. There's nothing in this new set about Israel from the time of Solomon up to the birth of Jesus, and nothing about the time of the apostles. So, once again, with the help of her assistants and previous writings, like Spiritual Gifts Volume 3 and an 1883 book she wrote called Sketches from the Life of Paul, Ellen publishes The Acts of the Apostles in 1911. Coincidentally, that's the same year that a second edition of The Great Controversy is published, but we'll get into that in a later episode. Then she and her team of assistants start work on the remaining Old Testament stories, but unfortunately, Ellen dies in 1915 before the book is released. All but two chapters had been completed at the time of her death, and her team felt that they had enough to go on, and so Captivity and Restoration of Israel, later titled Prophets and Kings, is published in 1916. And that is how the Conflict of the Ages series, as we know it today, came to be. The books uh, are not equal in detail. Patriarchs and Prophets, Desire of Ages, and Great Controversy are much more detailed than Acts of the Apostles and Prophets and Kings. But altogether, they tell the story of the conflict of the ages between Christ and Satan over the fact of the love of God. Is he loving? Is he not? And God can't explain that. He must demonstrate it. And at the center of that demonstration is the cross of Christ. It's a Christ-centered series. And uh, it developed, I'll summarize real quickly, in three stages. Late 50s, early 60s, spiritual gifts. 70s, spiritual prophecy. And then all the way from 88, clear up through 1917, the conflict of the ages. And each round of these three steps, each round enriches the story and adds new insight. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really know any of this before working on this episode. I don't know that I thought about it much, but I guess I would have thought that she just sat down and wrote these books in one go. Like, one of them was published after she died? I didn't know that. And she reused a lot of her existing work? And mostly, I didn't realize that writing them took up so much of her life. Yeah. And I think knowing about this process is pretty significant. Like, knowing that she revised these writings does seem to better support the thought inspiration idea. She seems pretty clear that she found better ways to describe things as time went on. Whatever the case may be, I think maybe most people who have read these books probably don't know all of this context either. And so we actually asked George about how critical he thinks knowing the context really is. Well, I think, it, I think it's helpful, uh, but uh, I think basically the books speak for themselves. I got blessed by the books before I ever knew the history of the books. How's that? Speaking of speaking for themselves... I mentioned that Ellen wrote an introduction to her 1888 printing of the book, The Great Controversy. One of the things we wanted to do in this episode, and with this show as a whole, is to help listeners read these books well, to help you understand where they're coming from and what to pay attention to. You've heard George and Michael trace the themes of these books. You know how they came together. Maybe you know a little more now about Ellen and the world she wrote in. 
But what did Ellen herself want to tell you before you started on this reading journey? We certainly encourage you to read this for yourself and carefully. It can be found in the first few pages of any copy of The Great Controversy today. But here are the last two paragraphs from Ellen's own introduction to the series in her own words. It is not so much the object of this book to present new truths concerning the struggles of former times as to bring out facts and principles which have a bearing on coming events. Yet viewed as part of the controversy between the forces of light and darkness, all these records of the past are seen to have a new significance, and through them a light is cast upon the future, illumining the pathway of those who, like the reformers of past ages, will be called, even at the peril of all earthly good, to witness for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. To unfold the scenes of the great controversy between truth and error. To reveal the wiles of Satan and the means by which he may be successfully resisted. To present a satisfactory solution of the great problem of evil, shedding such a light upon the origin and the final disposition of sin as to make fully manifest the justice and benevolence of God in all his dealings with his creatures. And to show the holy, unchanging nature of his law is the object of this book. That through its influence, souls may be delivered from the power of darkness and become partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, to the praise of him who loved us and gave himself for us, is the earnest prayer of the writer. We asked Michael and George, along with a few other people we talked to for this episode, why people should read these books in the first place. And pretty much everyone pointed to the same thing. If you really want to understand what Ellen White was about, this is the place to start. If you're wondering whether or not she's inspired, it's probably the best way to find out. If you want to see God in the Bible in new ways, she says she wrote this for you. And if you're in a dark place, maybe you can find some light here. The Conflict Audible is produced by Types and Symbols, an independent creative studio, as a companion to The Conflict Beautiful, a new hardcover NKJV edition of Ellen White's Conflict of the Ages series. We've also put together a reading plan to help you work your way through The Conflict of the Ages in a year. Learn more at theconflictbeautiful.com read. This episode was produced by me, Ivan Ruiz-Not, with help from Olivia Ruiz-Not and Alex Prouty. Additional production support by Adam Fenner, Kendra Arsenault, Steve Husett, Keith Bowman, and Paul Kim. Thanks to Kevin Burton and Tim Poyer for pointing us in some good directions and answering a lot of our questions. Many thanks especially to our guests Dr. George Knight and Dr. Michael Campbell for taking the time to talk to us for this episode, and to my co-founder, Mark Cook. And please, please, please know that people being on this show, or helping out with it, or being related to us does not in any way mean that they agree with everything or anything we say, nor does it mean that they endorse or support the conflict beautiful. They are just really nice people trying to help us do a good job at understanding and explaining Ellen. If you want to learn more about Ellen White from the people she entrusted with her estate, visit whiteestate.org. We are in no way affiliated with them, but they have a lot of great resources. Also, if you're a really nice person who can help us understand and explain Ellen, let us know. Did we get something wrong? Did we leave something out? Do you know a ton about something we've touched on? Did we miss an important point? Do you have questions? Do you just disagree? We probably want to talk to you. Visit theconflictaudible.com to get in touch. But I'm going to play Ellen White for a minute and say, look it, before you read Desire of Ages, why don't you read the Gospels 